So when you figure that 30 to 40% of the food that we produce, we waste or lose or waste in the world, it's not difficult to understand that there's a massive environmental impact. And it boils down to somewhere between 8 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally are related to the process of producing, moving, and consuming or discarding food. And so that is a huge opportunity. And at a moment where climate crisis is so certainly front and center in my thinking, and I think it needs to be in everybody's thinking, this is super actionable. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear one conversation after another that brings you aha moments. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost none of us know nearly enough about. It is so well hidden by the negative noise that I'm calling it a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world out there. And on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, we're going to be bringing you interviews with the people making it that way. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange. That's the mothership website of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Over at The Goodness Exchange, you'll be able to access instantly articles, videos, interviews, and all kinds of links to what's right with the world. Newsworthy things going really very uncelebrated that we think more people ought to know about. And the purpose of this podcast is to put a spring in your step again so you can live with less fear and more joy. And we're going to get to that right now with an interview with Andrew Shackman. Andrew is the CEO and co-founder of an organization called Lean Path. It's a certified B Corp, which we may talk about a little bit later, with a mission to make food waste a thing of the past. From the beginning, Andrew has worked to catalyze a global movement to address this food waste crisis that until I dove into this, I didn't even know there was a food waste crisis. But this movement that he is catalyzing is really catching on. And if you haven't heard of it, I'm pretty sure you're going to very soon. Andrew's been featured in Business Week and NPR, Forbes, Fast Company. He has presented at the World Bank, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, Harvard, the Culinary Institute of America. I could go on and on, hundreds of organizations. Andrew's work and the work of Lean Path is shaping our future when it comes to food waste. And today, it's going to surprise you, we're not talking about more composting. Turns out getting restaurants, institutions, and governments on a path to just use less is the way we're going to make a future that is brighter for us all. Lean Path is operating in 40 countries, and their solution comes from really looking at the root cause of food waste. That's all the way through the chain of how food goes from where it's produced to our tables. And I tell you, doing the research for this, I learned so much and I have a spring in my step now just knowing that Andrew and this organization is out there shaping our future. You know, what I love about this, ooh, I just got goosebumps for a minute. What I love about this problem that Lean Path is solving is that it is one problem we actually know how to solve. You know, there's so many crises in the world that we are struggling to find the imagination to, to handle. But this, like many others we have featured on the Goodness Exchange, this is a problem we know how to solve. And we're going to talk to one of the greatest thought leaders in this world of food waste about how it's getting done. So welcome, Andrew Shackman. Thank you, Linda. I think that's the best intro I've ever had. I'm, I'm, and uh, you've made it already the case for food waste. So I'm excited for our conversation. Well, I'm telling you, yesterday I did such a such a remarkably uplifting interview that I started keeping track of how many times I had goosebumps, and I already had them twice just talking about what you're doing. <laughs> so Terrific. let's start somewhere because you've got a lot to share with us that I know people are going to go away like I did, going, I have no idea. And then also there's this there's this sense of, gosh, we can get our arms around this. The progress that you guys have made is unbelievable. But let's start with something simple. Okay. There were two things that you said to me during the pre the pre-call that I I wrote down as quotes and let's just start there and then see where we go. One thing that you said was to put this in perspective, if food loss were a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the US. 
That to me is just mind boggling. And I have to understand that more. And then the other thing you said was we discovered that food waste is really the elephant in the kitchen. Yes. So get us started to understand this whole world. So I think the fr- I'll start with the elephant. And what we find is that food waste is so omnipresent in our world that in many cases, we just don't see it. We expect it. It's business as usual. We're numb to it. We may have a moment of consciousness where we go, ooh, shouldn't be throwing that out. Wish I weren't. But then we move on. And what we find in working in commercial kitchens is that that perspective scales up to a very large amount of food waste and understandable when people are working really hard and they have so much time pressure and so much they have to do and this sort of becomes one of the ways that they solve problems you know they make a little more than they need so they don't run out and you know they want to put a little more out on the buffet so that it looks beautiful and we start to find that we use food waste to solve other problems And it becomes the elephant in the kitchen where we just aren't aware even that we're using it in that way and that there are other options available to us. So one of my first goals has been to wake people up that there is an elephant in your kitchen. It is food waste. You've been tolerating it. And it's time for us to herd that elephant out. So that's very much where we come from in this, which is there's no one is intending to waste food. No one comes to work with this sort of I want to I want to throw food away. No. People want to be hospitable. People want to create delightful food experiences, whether that's in food service or it's at home when we host people for a dinner or a holiday. We want to have a great hospitable experience. And as a result of that, we tend to do things that are really unbalanced and that lead to a lot of food waste. And that impact, of course, is financial, but it's also, to your point, an environmental impact of massive consequence. So when we think about the greenhouse gas reality that food waste would represent the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases if it were a country after the U.S. and China, where that comes from is the fact that agriculture is itself a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions. And when we we have to look at the totality of agriculture, so everything from the farm inputs, herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers that are in many if not most cases, petroleum-based, and then all of the tractor fuel and all of the all of the hauling and the processing and the refrigeration. And by the time an item that's perishable reaches the grocery store or a food service operation, it is already so invested from a carbon perspective. We have put so much resource into that. And so when you figure that 30 to 40% of the food that we produce, we waste or loser waste in the world, it's not difficult to understand that there's a massive environmental impact. And it boils down to somewhere between 8 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally are related to the process of producing, moving, and consuming or discarding food. And so that is a huge opportunity. And at a moment where climate crisis is so certainly front and center in my thinking, and I think it needs to be in everybody's thinking, this is super actionable. Gosh, I love so many things about your. By the way, I'm just going to own it right now because I know it's going to happen through the. I'm writing down little things that Andrew's saying so that I can, so I don't forget to ask you about it. Because you just used a turn of phrase that I think we've all got to start thinking about. You said it's an opportunity. Food waste is an opportunity. It's not a problem. I mean, it is a problem, but in every problem, there's an opportunity. And that's one of the things I've noticed about the attitudes of most of the folks that we interview on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. They have applied enough in imagination to some of the most vexing problems in our world that, of course, there's a solution waiting out there. Talk to us about the opportunity aspect of this. Yeah. So I think the opportunity, of course, relates directly to the scale of the problem to begin with. It's a big problem, which means it's a huge opportunity for improvement. And The opportunity is to have less food waste. And if you think about solving the food waste problem, we often will organize that in a hierarchy where we think first about source reduction or prevention of food waste. And then we move from there to recovering excess edible food and making sure that it goes to people who need it. And then we go from there to thinking about food that can't be directed to people. Can it be directed to animal feed? And then from there, we look at energy production, and then we look at compost, 
And then finally, we get to the idea of landfilling it or incinerating it. And that hierarchy is a really useful thought framework to be able to prioritize what we do first when we go after this opportunity. And what we, I think as people, we tend to gravitate to things that are tangible that we can see. And so we tend to want to compost or to donate food because we can see the actions occurring and we can see the fruits of that effort. But prevention is actually at the top of the hierarchy and it is the highest impact area and it's invisible. And so we don't see it. So we tend to look past it or we check the box and say, of course, we want to prevent it. But really, these are the things we can do. And so from an opportunity point of view, the big opportunity is to prevent, to source reduce, to change and re-engineer the way we think and work and buy and produce and serve so that we have less food waste. And when we do that, we save on the greenhouse gas emissions because now we're not pulling that product through the system. You know, we're not putting that load on the system. And that means that then that food's available elsewhere. And it also, from a financial point of view, frankly, has a huge win as well, because we pay for all the food that we waste. I think that's what I loved best about this. The further I dove in, I think you, I think you were introduced. I think somebody that I really appreciate who I've interviewed before introduced you and I, but I think that's the reason why they introduced us. If I can remember is because they know here at the goodness exchange and the, and this podcast, we're very attracted to people who are ingenious enough to figure out systems that are a win, win, win for everyone. And that's what's really going on here. How about share some of your favorite stats with us on this opportunity as it relates to anything that you think is important. Sure. I will share some, although it's funny. I'm not a huge stats fan, even though I'm in a data business, just because I think sometimes we can tune them out in the way we hear the numbers and they and they roll over us. But I think the key ones for food waste, we've touched on already a couple of them, but we are wasting or losing 30 to 40% of the food that is produced. You don't have to think specifically about the number. Just think about roughly a third of everything that we grow is lost and then or wasted and then you think about that in the context of not just plants but animals that are produced and i understand i eat meat i was once a vegetarian but i eat meat and i respect that part of the food system for sure but what i don't respect is the idea that you know we raise you know we raise animals then we don't bother right to go after them so to, to go actually eat them right like we they, we've lost that life and we haven't we haven't made use of that sacrifice so I look at that third, that one third statistic as a really key defining element. The second one is the greenhouse gas profile, the eight to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions linked to food loss and waste. That is in our time directly connected to the climate crisis and critical. Then we look at the fact that 15% of Americans and, and hundreds of millions of people globally are food insecure. And at the same time, that we're throwing away a third of the food that we produce. So those stats right there, I hope get everyone's attention. And then we're spending over a trillion dollars a year to make this food that is lost or wasted. So imagine what could happen if we were to take those dollars and not have those greenhouse gas emissions, the opportunity is immense. And the other thing that I think, Linda, just to put this in perspective is that we are going to have approaching 10 billion 10 billion people on this earth by 2050 and we're gonna have to feed them and we can do that in one of two ways we can either cut down the rest of the amazon and try to create as much productive agricultural land as possible or we can make a huge dent in that by just not wasting food and so when you think about the climate impact a lot of this is going to be from land conversion in the future to feed a growing population that we can avert. So those would be the big stats, kind of think ahead, think where we are now, but then also think ahead to where we're going to be in 20, 25 years and how we need to fix this. Perfect. Okay. So now that we've got sort of an idea of where we're heading, we're going to, we're going to head into what you actually do, which just blew my mind. And, but first we're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to, we're going to hear so many more things that'll put a spring in our step. So let's take a break. Hi, Dr. Linda Ulrich here, founder of The Goodness Exchange. Hey, did you know that a recent Harvard study found that just 90 seconds of positive news each day will make you 18% more optimistic, 32% less anxious, 
and 12% more likely to feel gratitude? Yes, if you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, you will radiate joy and strength and ideas in all your circles. And the Goodness Exchange will give you that instant access you need to positive news, fresh insights, and uplifting perspectives. That will save you time and your sanity. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. But what about our working environments? We need to feel alive in those places and feel supported. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange for business. For companies all over the world who want to create optimistic, values-driven work cultures, our content can give them a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may now depend on your culture's ability to nurture this tone of insight and innovation and possibility. So why should we care? I don't know which one of the following statistics is more important. In 2022, only 32% of people reported feeling engaged at work. And that's the second year in a row there for a decline in that report. And one study found that 70% of employees say they would leave their current organization for a different employer offering resources to reduce burnout. This is hard to hear, but your work culture can offer something new, peace of mind and a sense of flourishing where employees' well-being isn't just a perk any longer. Addressing the root cause of employee burnout is critical to every company's bottom line and the goodness exchange for business is the perfect way to do that. We can meaningfully elevate the results of your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages and give you an organization that has its foundations in a shared sense of positivity. If you'd like to chat about infusing your company's culture with a tone of celebration about what's right with the world, about goodness and innovation and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl, at info at goodness-exchange.com. Thanks. Okay, we're back. So we're chatting with an amazing man, Andrew Shackman, today, who is the co-founder and and CEO of a group called Lean Path, which you're going to hear more and more about. This organization is leading a movement to reduce food waste in our world that is just it's an unbelievable opportunity, not a problem. <laughs> and we are going to learn more and more about why this is an opportunity for humanity. So let's move on with our chat here. Tell us about what you actually do, because this surprised me as well. I think it's probably started somewhere and ended up somewhere else, but give us a, just an overview. So one of the things that I love about what we do is that it's very practical and it's it's very tangible. So when we began on this journey, we drew inspiration from the fact that there had been massive efficiency gains and success in reducing defects and reducing waste in manufacturing. And we said, what is a kitchen if it's not a factory? It really is a factory. Could we take some of the management science that works in a factory setting and bring it into a kitchen in a way that made sense for the culture and the people in that kitchen. And so one of the things that you see that really works is when you measure something, you manage it. And when you measure something, it improves. There's another great phrase, people do what you inspect, not what you expect. So all of these are part of this general idea that when you bring data into your operation and you create feedback loops and you involve teams in data-driven discovery and team-based problem solving, you can do just about anything. And so we took that inspiration and said, what if we were to introduce measurement into the kitchen? What if we were to measure all the food waste every day? Might we be able to change culture and focus behavior and have all of these outcomes that have occurred in other places, you know, shocking, we could do this in a kitchen. And so that's what LeanPath does is we create tools to make food waste measurement and discovery of patterns and action related to that possible. So we provide hardware solutions to measure waste. This includes scales and cameras and touchscreen input devices. Sometimes they use AI to recognize items. Sometimes they don't. We have 
an online platform that takes all the data from those systems and organizes it. And then we have some tools that guide people to take action on the areas of greatest opportunity. And what we found is that when people do that, they typically cut the food waste that the kitchen controls by half or more. And it's inspiring and amazing. And the way they do that is by building an understanding of where the waste is happening, changing the way they purchase, how much they purchase, changing what they produce, how much they produce, and adjusting menus when they understand which things are getting wasted the most or maybe challenging. And so you start learning. And as you learn, you start to make changes and you get better. And I think you get more confident because that elephant in the kitchen is now visible to you and you can start to manage it down. And that doesn't mean run out of food. It does mean know that every night you have been making four extra pans of something and maybe you only need one third of a pan to not run out, right? And so we're not about perfection, right? This is progress over perfection, but that's what LeanPath does is we provide those tools and the support services around that, including we have chefs on our team who work with culinarians to help them see this problem and make it an opportunity and solve it. And it's super exciting to see them go through that process of first the aha of, whoa, I knew I had food waste. Well, sometimes they don't. Often now they do. Usually they're surprised by how much they have and what it is. And then from there to see them be able to work on it and succeed. And I think the last thing, Linda, that that is part of what we do that I didn't anticipate when we started, but it's the great just positive energy that is created through the engagement of frontline teams in food service. And this is something that that when the light bulb went off for me on this, I got goosebumps. And it was when I said, who's going to fix this food waste problem in food service, which by the way, is about 25% of the overall waste problem. It's the frontline food service workers. It's the people who are making these decisions. I'm going to make a little, or I'm going to make a lot. I'm going to buy this, or I'm not going to buy that. These people are the global change makers. And they often don't know that. They're in jobs that often don't get nearly enough respect. And, you know, they work so hard and they have a chance to get fired three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And these are very, very difficult jobs. And to be able to provide the tools to help these frontline team members become aware that they are able to make this change is hugely inspiring for us. That's a goosebump moment right there. You are so right. You know, one of the things that that we see in some of the best ideas in the world that we've been writing about for 10 years or interviewing, it's that, boy, there's a stage in the innovator's recipe where they figure out how, how to really embrace all the stakeholders, right? Like, you have preserve to. everybody's, yeah, preserve everyone's dignity, if not elevate everyone's sense of dignity. Right. Well, and for us, it's really interesting because trust me, the moment that people learn that they're going to be asked to measure all their food waste, the first thing they think is, uh oh, somebody's going to surveil me. I'm going to be watched. I'm going to be penalized. I'm going to be criticized. People are looking for my weaknesses. And so the first thing we do when we show up is we say, we're here for you. This isn't about some eye in the sky. This is about giving you the information as a chef or chef manager or, or a supervisor to understand what's happening and to be able to support the team in doing things differently and being better. And so it's not every kitchen has food waste. The, the best kitchens are the ones that measure it. And so the tool is for the frontline team to understand it and be able to make change. It also gives voice. Like I'll never forget, I was doing training at a hospital and there was a woman who made sandwiches and that was her that was her focus area and i'd been training and she came up to me and sort of like got my attention and and said hey i want to show you something and she showed me how when she made these sandwiches she always labeled them with a date and it was a three-day lifespan on the sandwich and she said my colleagues aren't reading the label correctly i'm putting it on for three days and i'm labeling it and it's supposed to be taken out at the end of the third day that it's dated, but they're taking it out at the beginning of the day and throwing it away. And I'm having trouble getting people to understand this, right? So they're losing like a third of the lifespan of these sandwiches because people just misinterpreted what the expectation was on the dating. And so she didn't have a voice. 
And by measuring and having this discussion, now she had a voice to have that that impact. So it's really, really interesting about making it safe and empowering rather than negative. And by the way, sometimes people do try to use it. They're like, I'm going to watch my team. And I'm like, hey, like, let me tell you the quickest path to not succeeding with this. Yes. Well, you know, we've gotten into a world that's so full of blame and who's responsible for this kind of mentality that it would be very easy unless you presented this right to a team of conscientious, well-intending, hardworking people, you would say, oh, no, (laughs) you know, it's just going to be another place for scrutiny or comparison or what have you. So I'm sure it really does come down to the way you present it as an opportunity. We're back to that, right? Critical. Absolutely critical. And so go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and by the way, that's got to be designed in, Linda. Like, it's not like you can't, you can present it that way, but like we build it into the system. So things like when you record food waste, it's like a lottery. Every nth time you record something, you may be a winner. And up pops a little thing that says you've won. And so there's a chance, right, for them, for there to be recognition and appreciation and gratitude around this effort. I'm so glad you added that because that that's really part of what a really ingenious future for us all holds. You know, this gamification of things that we ought to be doing otherwise, you can minimize that. But gosh, there's so much science around how our brains love a good riddle yeah. and yes. how we love to solve problems. We're just sense-making machines between here, right? So d- all of us have this angst about, I'll do it today because I, I do my shopping on Friday afternoon. I'm going to have to go through that fridge. And throw away a bunch that didn't get used because I had good intentions at the big last week yep. on Friday, right? It's all, I mean, you can acknowledge that I bought a lot of salad stuff because I had good intentions. But if mm-hmm. we didn't actually get to get home enough early enough to make dinner or whatever, and it's okay. So oh, I want to go into that thing with our own fridges so bad, but I want to yes. say hi right now. <laughs> Talk to us about some food waste myths, because some of these that you that you talked about, like donation and composting, like there's some myths that we're operating on about food waste, aren't there? Yeah, I think so. And look, I have a lot of empathy, so this isn't meant to be critical. I think we all can gain greater insight into something. But composting is one that stands out where mm-hmm. I think people perceive that if they're composting, they're solving a problem. And that's not really true. And this is also true with recycling more generally. And so, you know, when we compost, we still have all the upstream greenhouse gas emissions. We still have all the costs. None of that food is available to anyone to eat, right? So composting is is one of those things, though, that people will check the box and go, okay, I got this covered. And there was some great research that a professor named Brian Rowe did at Ohio State a number of years ago. And he and his graduate students brought in, I I think, three cohorts of people. And they did this several times. One cohort, they presented a lecture on, I don't know, financial planning or something. And they had an all-you-care-to-eat lunch, eat whatever you want, and then throw stuff away. And they measured per capita, how much people threw away. And it was a fair amount. Then they had a second a second group where they came in and they the talk was not about financial planning. It was about food waste and how bad it was. And same operation, take as much as you want, throw out what you want. Something like 75% reduction per capita food waste after people heard this story. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The third group came in and they heard the exact same story on food waste. But there was one additional item shared with them, which is that everything they didn't eat today would be composted. They wasted almost as much as the first group. It was basically a ticket in people's minds to not worry about this. And we know that there's a finite pool of worry. There's only so much that we can think about there's so many challenges that you know are opportunities, but you know we can't we can't carry them all at one time. And so when we can check one off and go, I got that covered, we do. So that's the compost myth, and it certainly, if you've got excess food that you have no other you know opportunity to use it, it's much much better to compost it than to put it in a landfill. And I mean, I'm absolutely composting at home, and I recommend that everybody do that. But don't let it excuse overproduction, overpurchasing, 
and and that sort of you know set of upstream activities which are really the things we need to fix so that's i think that's one myth another one is on donation so i want to be really clear i believe that excess edible food should be recovered and donated and brought to people in need for sure but i think what can happen is it can have a similar impact to the compost story that we say okay you know we're going to donate food and it can have some unintended sort of create some unintended license and in food service what we see is that sometimes people will overproduce because they know that the excess edible food will be donated and and so that's not ideal because we know that that excess food is kind of random when it arrives at a food pantry and they have to figure out how to work it in it's perishable it would be much better if we didn't overproduce and we made a donation of money to allow people to buy the right food to make a balanced oper- you know, b- balanced menu in those food insecurity uh, oriented organizations. So, so those are a couple of myths that we see and would love to help people break through that insight. It almost feels like it, you know, I know that in my little, how did you say there's, a, we have a finite pool of worry. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> well, of course, we live in the in the woods of Vermont, and we have the organic garden and the organic farmer and all this stuff near us and all that. So I always feel like the composting is almost like a get out of jail for free card. <laughs> right. It, it, yeah. Like, we just have to put our big boy and big girl pants on and, and just deal with this. Like, really plan your menus. And then, of course, there's the industrial scale that you're talking about. Tell us some stories, because like you're work, working with institutions like maybe it was at UCLA or University of Wisconsin, or you're working with some big institutions. And I never really thought about the amount of food waste. Let's even just start there on like college campuses or cruise lines or what have you. Tell us some real life stories. Yeah. Of impact. So painting a picture of where we do much of our work, it's in large scale food operations and colleges, hospitals, corporate dining facilities, hotels, river boats, cruise vessels, and even places people might not expect, like in military bases or, you know, sites that are remote where people are involved in some form of construction or energy-related work. And so all of those sites have in common a lot of people who are eating, and they're usually there more than one day. And so the menu changes every day. And as a result, when you have the same diners and the menu changes every day, that's a recipe for a lot of food waste because you don't ever get to really practice the same dish over and over again because you have so much variety. And so that's the world that we have focused a lot of energy on is places that really have a big food waste struggle. And it's pervasive throughout the industry. But this group of folks that have high volumes and a lot of menu changes are right in the target zone. And so we go to, yes, to universities and corporate dining and and other places and hotels, and we help them understand it. And then sometimes the answers are very simple. They're not, it's not rocket science, but things like, do we have a 25 foot long buffet open all day? Or do we potentially shrink that up as we get later in the day and not have as much food out? Do we make a pan of scrambled eggs? If we're going to close breakfast at 9 a.m., do we make one of those at 8.30? Or do we say, put up a sign that says, we would be delighted to cook your eggs to order. We have them. You just tell us what you want. And for the handful of people that come through at the end and want eggs, we make them fresh, terrific eggs, right? So it's a win. It's better food. You don't waste a pan of scrambled eggs. Do you want to make, you know, for let's say, pizzas and you want to have variety in pizzas? Do you make a whole pizza of three different varieties or could you potentially make half a pizza with one topping set and half a pizza with the other? So we have varieties, but less food. And then you start to get some really interesting things. Like we have a hotel client that we've worked with in Australia where they found they had a, a ton of citrus peels that they were wasting. And they realized that they could actually make a beautiful marmalade out of this. And they started putting it in guest rooms as like a house made item. When you checked in, there was a beautiful little marmalade gift object that was in the room and it was coming from the excess peels from the citrus that they were using. So you see all kinds of ingenuity. And that's one thing that I've been super excited about. Like we don't have all the answers to how to solve this problem. The chefs and the frontline teams have them. But once you focus them on it, they will come up with ingenious answers and you start to see it. And it's amazing to watch. 
you've struck on another point that this, who are all the stakeholders? You know, we have a, a lovely Vermont town that we live in, St. Albans, Vermont, and I'm a dentist by trade for 30 years. And I remember having this conversation with one of the guys, we have, we're in Vermont, so we have tons of snow and snow removal is a big thing for six months of the year. And when they were redoing our downtown, they got all this federal money to redo the downtown. It was just, it, it is beautiful. But I remember talking to one of those, the road crew guys, the guys who who actually plow the snow in the winter when they were doing the construction project. And he said, not going to be able to plow that the way it's designed. Because I was going on about how lovely it was designed. Mm. And it had all these bump outs and stuff. And of course, he was the one who had to take care of it. He realized they couldn't take these big snow plows around all these lovely little mini park bump outs, right? And then he also noticed that they hadn't made any provisions for rails. And sure enough, somebody did fall in our town, break their leg falling down. And so we had to go in and retrofit a bunch of rails. But my point is, is that in this process of building a movement around this, I would imagine some of the most ingenious ideas, once you engage a workforce, is going to come from the people who are closest to making the food. Absolutely. I mean, there there is there's no doubt. I mean, they're confronting the reality every day and, and not just the opportunity space, but also knowing what's feasible, right? Like so much of this is the art of the possible. Like we can sit up in an abstract sense in a conference room and design a bunch of solutions and hope they're feasible, right? And then they meet reality. And so, so much of what I think we do at LeanPath is translation between the sort of objective, the mission, the ideal, and the practical, what can work, and how do we adapt this to be highly functional in a kitchen environment that has to produce food, a lot of it, quickly, every day, and nowadays with fewer people working. And so you have to make it real. And the best way to make it real is the teams at the front line who are really solving the problems. Yeah, they know their own lives. And I'm sure the waste part of it it doesn't make them feel good to start with. So it's an easily it's an easily engageable group of folks too, right? They're common sense. Hundred percent. They're ahead of they're ahead of their bosses. And I remember an interesting experience I had where I was in a kitchen in upstate New York in a hospital early in my lean path journey. And I walked into the pot wash area, which if you've ever been in a commercial kitchen is kind of a place that everything goes to be cleaned and sanitized. And the person who works in there doesn't necessarily interact a lot with other people. And they're, sometimes that's a good place for introverts or people who, you know, don't necessarily want to have a lot of that interaction. And I walked into this room and the pot washer's there and he says to me, who are you and what are you doing here? And I said, uh-oh, this is, this is not going to go well. And I said, I'm Andrew, I'm here to help you with food waste. And he looks at me and he says, it's about time. And, and he says, the amount of food that I throw down the drain here every day. I think about it, how I go to my church on my days off and I volunteer and I think about all the good that could come from that. He is acutely aware of this opportunity and sees it every day. And at the at the low wages that we are paying at, at typically in food service, people don't have any money to waste food at home. And so there's acute awareness in the food service world about it and a strong desire to be able to not see it at work, but they have to be given the tools and opportunity to make that happen. It's another part of the big win for this concept. Now, this is such a great concept that you guys were nominated for the Earthshot Prize. Oh, I just got goosebumps again. You know, talk to us about the Earthshot Prize because I I come across it all the time because we're talking to thought leaders who might be in that world. But tell us about the Earthshot Prize and your nomination and what that indicates for us all, maybe. So we were nominated last year and we were very excited to be nominated because I think it is one of the really the preeminent platforms for trying to drive change around really significant climate and environmental initiatives. And so there's, you know, we don't get up every morning hoping to win awards, but what we hope to do is change the, you know, the way people think and work. And awards can be really helpful in that, right? Because it's external validation that this idea that the crazy people at LeanPath have isn't crazy, right? It is actually legit and people understand it and it fits into a context and it matters. And so that's why 
we're honored whenever we're recognized by something. And in this case, we were just a, we were just a nominee. We didn't we didn't win, but I think it's still it's a great stage to be on. And I think it serves the exact same purpose, which is it's validating and it also allows our customers to understand that what they're doing is the right path. And so, and it's, I think, very meaningful also to our team in just seeing the work recognized because it's hard work. And so very meaningful for us. You know what I love about the Earthshot Prize, and I would encourage people to to check that out, just, you know, if not, for nothing else, for another reason than to know that the narrative that we are getting from the news and social media about all the, the relentless doom and gloom, it is such a small slice of reality. And what the Earthshot Prize tells us, you know, there's this quote, I wish I could attribute it to the right person, but that, you know, we are, we are not going to the future. We are creating it. And so the Earth Prize, to me, just tells me what the future looks like, because this is what yeah. we're rewarding, that what's there is what we are optimizing for now. We're not just optimizing for corporate shareholders to be wealthy from here on out. We are beginning as a culture, as a global culture, to optimize for a whole different range of things. And the Earth Prize points to what that is and what that looks like. Agree completely. It's we are crafting the future to your point. Someone said recently to me they that they threw out a phrase that was just interesting and caught my ear, which was remember the future. And it was like it was an interesting, interesting phrase just in terms of it, you know, it, it always in this moment, right? Let's think ahead and let's be clear about where we're heading and uh, and optimistic about it. Absolutely. Okay. So from here, we can't miss chatting a little bit about the arc of your trajectory, your personal, how you got here today, Andrew Shackman. I mean, one of the things that we hope that this podcast demonstrates is that everyone is uniquely built to contribute something. And people like you, and I feel like I, I have, I was a really good dentist for 30 years. I was using computers to fix teeth in 2003, but I always felt like there was something just a little bit different that I was uniquely built to contribute and I should be doing it. And fortunately, about 10 years ago, I discovered this, but, but you have a path that's very, has, is full random? of serendipity and very random. And I always like to stray into that part of the story of the innovators that we feature because it demonstrates that every single experience that people are having right now is valid. It is important what you're doing, even though you might not feel like you found your purpose or whatever the, yeah. the zeitgeist mojo words are for that. Talk to us about your story and how it all mattered in the end. Yeah. Well, so first of all, you, of course, don't know where you're going to end up. And so we can make meaning looking backwards, right? And I can say, looking backwards, okay, I think what guided me was I was always interested in learning and I was curious. And as long as those things were happening, those were the pathways I followed. But I didn't know that at the time. And so my journey was that I I studied theater in college and was interested in storytelling and narrative. And I found myself gravitating to thinking about narrative that could be purposeful and change-oriented. And I started off, went to graduate school in motion picture producing and thought I was going to be a film producer. And I had a whole bunch of thoughts about how those films could be positive and, you know, in terms of the impact they had. And I was always sort of amazed at the power of narrative to drive change. And, and then one day, I learned about this thing in 1994 called the web, the World Wide Web. And a friend of mine said, have you seen this? And I hadn't at that instant and did. And it was like, wow, I think this is where stories are going to be told. Narratives are going to occur. Uh, and so I kind of did a sharp left turn and left the film business. I've been working at a unit at Fox Searchlight Pictures, a unit at 20th Century Fox doing art house movies. And I was very junior in that world. But, you know, that was the path I thought I was going to be on. And I ended up going into an internet business. And it happened to be that big companies were the first people to start to tell their stories online. And so I started working for big companies that happened to be food companies telling their stories. And I was learning and it was fascinating and fun. And 
And it was a different kind of narrative maybe than I'd expected to be doing, but there was all sorts of story built into it, particularly in the early days where content was so merged with any kind of commercial message. And so I uh, learned a ton in doing that. And But what I also learned was that when I tried to sit down as our company grew a ton and we sold it and I tried to write the mission, vision, and values for that version of our company seven or so years into it, and I struggled, Linda, and I tried to write down what we were doing that really mattered to the world. And I reflected on how we were, I'm going to be honest, we were selling things like Captain Crunch to children. CaptainCrunch.com was our creation. And like I was engineering ways to get children to buy pre-sweetened cereal, get the mothers to buy it for them. And now, of course, working where I work, I look back and I go, oh, I have so many sins to atone for because that was not the right path. It was the path I found myself on. It was fascinating learning and interesting. So when the internet bubble 1.0 blew up and I'd been running that company and taking it to scale and then sort of wrote it down the other side, I said, all right, what am I going to do next? And tech and food were in my in my context but i wasn't sure what it was going to be and somehow just started to become aware that food waste was a problem it was a bit random through a number of inputs and i learned that menu prices were growing at a slower rate than wholesale food prices and i said oh there's a toothache that's a real problem and i knew i wanted to do something that involved hardware not just software that stuck around that made a difference and was really significant to people. And so started working on it really initially as an economic problem, but no one knew anything about food waste. And so at that point, I found I had to educate. And so I spent so much of my time out there telling the story of food waste. And you know, there's that classic thought that the way you really learn something, someone shows you it, you do it yourself, but if you really wanna know it, you teach it to other people. And I did hundreds of these seminars teaching about food waste and what was funny or ironic, I guess, about this is that the first seven or eight years of Lean Path, it was a horrible business. I joked that the name of the company described the experience. It was a Lean Path. And I had this article about exit decisions on my desk. And it was like, when do you shoot this thing? Because it's not working. And at the same time, I was learning about food waste as a problem. And I was like, uh-oh, I had not realized, frankly, at the onset the environmental and social components that we've talked about today. And as I learned about them and I taught them to people, I just had this like sense of shock when I realized I'm holding on to a high voltage line. I didn't even know I was holding on to. This is a nexus issue. This is the nexus issue. This has to be fixed. And so we said, we're not going to quit, even though this has been a tough road. And now I'm almost 20 years into it and it's turned a corner and it is scaling. And But that's my journey, sort of. And in the end, I would say the cohesive element has been learning, curiosity, and narrative, because telling stories to drive change is really core to everything that we do. And in fact, final thought, I even think of what we do in the kitchen as the theater of measurement, that when we measure, it's it creates consciousness. And so there's a great Buckminster Fuller quote that says, if you want to change the way people think, don't bother. I'm paraphrasing. Instead, give them a tool. And through the use of the tool, they will change. And so when we put our trackers in a kitchen, they look like kitchen equipment, except they're painted bright green because we want them to look like they fit, but also stand out because we want people to recognize that the act of measurement in and of itself is the first act of prevention. It's the consciousness and the cognitive connection that what I'm putting in the garbage, I need to think differently about. And a garbage can isn't full of garbage. It's full of ideas for improvement. It's the empirical sort of evidence of our inefficiency. And once you start to realize those things, then you realize that, wow, the active measurement itself and that and the theatrical experience of that awareness is the intervention. Yes, you use the data thereafter, but that's intervention too. And that's your drama training coming in, because that is a great way to say that. I feel like yes, just yes. jumping up and saying, hallelujah. <laughs> it is. I mean, there is so much passion in what you're saying and so much logic. It just is. Every one of those sentences, you know, we're going to share with folks that we're going to create some lovely clips from this from this interview. And that's going to be one of them because you've put the whole thing in a nutshell of opportunity for us. And I'd say you could downscale everything that you were just talking about to our own little home kitchens, too. And of course, yes. <laughs> that's where it adds up as well. It's not just industrial kitchens that are at the core of this. We as consumers are becoming more and more values driven. So, you know, we can get in the game and not buy that extra stuff if we're not actually yes. have a game plan to use it this week. 
Linda, I was just going to say your listen, you know, listeners and watchers might be interested in a great book called The Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook by Dana Gunders, who is a terrific thinker on food waste and a good friend. And she has done a superb job of creating this handbook that is for people at home to think about how to organize their fridge and how to plan their shopping and all the things that you can do to have low food waste in your life. That's perfect. And I, this is a good moment to remind people that the article on the Goodness Exchange, there will be an article written around this interview on the Goodness Exchange website, and it will be full of links and recommendations like that. It, there's where you're going to find the full scope of everything that Andrew and I are talking about and beyond. You won't find that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So, so do try and listen to this episode and check out the article that will give you even so much more past what Andrew and I are finding the time to talk about. So, you know, there's a few things I want to I wanna make sure we don't miss because you have this great insight that you can share with us. I, I'm thinking how we can all kind of apply this to the problems that we're trying to solve in the world because we're all trying to be helpers. This bringing the horizon in. Talk to us about that mm-hmm. concept. Well, I think when we talk about change, we often talk about it in terms of a long way out. And the truth is, we need to get after it right now. And so bringing the horizon in is about holding ourselves accountable to making change in the short term, not just the long term, positive change. And so, you know, if we set a goal, for example, the sustainable development goal 12.3, which is to cut food waste in half by 2030, we should be making that cut food waste in half by 2025 and getting on with it because food waste is one of the most actionable things. Let's solve this now. And on this particular issue, I think bringing the horizon in, by the way, works generally on any of the things we're trying to fix. Let's do them faster. Let's do them bigger. Let's do them now, right? But specifically on food waste, when you figure that it's totally actionable, it's within every one of our control, like today, today, anyone can have an impact on food waste. And then you think about the fact that when it does go to landfills, and we didn't talk much about this, but when food waste goes to landfills, it rots and it produces methane. And that's part of the greenhouse gas profile. Methane is a short-lived climate pollutant. And so, meaning it's in the atmosphere for much less time than carbon dioxide. So when we reduce it, we can have more immediate short-term impacts on our climate. So we need to bring the horizon and work on food waste right now because it's actionable and it's also going to have sort of disproportionately high value in the climate space. And so so it's a it's yeah, I mean why not now? That's my question, you know, why not now? Why not bigger? Why not faster? And we find there are a lot of limiting beliefs out there even that change makers have that we we think we have to do it this way or that way and we have we're constrained in this way or that way and You know, what I have said to many that I talked about this is focus on trying to understand your own limiting beliefs because we all have them. What are the things that might be holding us back? And then challenge yourself bigger, faster, sooner, you know. The limiting belief issue, we could spend a whole nother... (laughs) another episode on that. And we do talk, most of the thought leaders we do talk about, that topic of limiting beliefs comes up almost every time in some form. Now, I wonder if it's attached to this other thing, because I don't want to wrap up today without talking to you about, you know, you're a whole person, you're doing lots of things in this world. Tell us about that other story in your life. You're on the board of every the Every Women Coalition. Yeah, the Every Woman Coalition, I'm on the board and have been involved for a number of years in several ways. And So this is unrelated to food waste, but very much related to the future that we want. And the Every Woman Coalition is focused on helping to bring about a global treaty to ban violence against women and girls. And surprising to many is the fact that in many countries and places, and even even in the U.S. in some ways, there are not sufficient legal frameworks to protect women and girls. And there is a huge opportunity for us to make great progress on this. And and things like there are parts of the world where, you know, rapists retain parental rights, where marital rape isn't a crime, where any of these things that are, I mean, they're tough topics, Linda. and And I bring it up though, because we can do so much better. And by creating a global norm around what kinds of protection should be there, we can call the world to a higher and better place on this. And so, 
For a number of years now, this coalition has been working. It's frontline grassroots activists, women from all around the world, particularly the global south, who are calling for this treaty and are pushing for it. And it is now starting to move and happen. And several nations are getting involved and are starting to begin the process. And so I'm super excited about it because I think it can have a huge impact and in so in just transformative ways. So so yes, yeah, so that's the other thing I'm I'm working on outside of food waste that I think is hugely important. So if people put every woman coalition in the search box, they're gonna just land right yeah. on it. Is that the best thing? Or the Every Woman Treaty, everywoman.org. Okay. All right. And people will find all kinds of connection to that in the show notes on the goodness exchange for this episode as well. So as we wrap up here. Andrew, what do you really wish people knew? I know people ask ask me that when I'm the guest on podcasts, and I've got that answer down so fast. Like, yeah. if we could have only talked for five minutes today, and I just said, Andrew, what do you wish people knew? What would it be? I guess I would go back to where we started, which is I want people to know how harmful food waste is to people and planet, and more importantly, as we've talked about, that it is a huge opportunity, and that the solution is here. It is available. It does not require invention and technological breakthrough. We today can work on this problem ourselves as individuals, in our families, in our own consumption patterns, and in our workplaces if we are involved in food in any way. This is just a big win, and it's right there for the taking. It is the low-hanging fruit. So what do I wish people knew? I, I wish they knew that that it's an issue and it can be fixed and that they have a role in it. This is not somebody else's problem. This is not somebody else's to fix. Tonight, when we sit down at dinner, it is ours to work on this problem. That's so lovely. So what has to happen next for this to just burst onto the scene? I mean, this is the problem we struggle with at the Goodness Exchange for the last 10 years as we keep coming across all these ingenious ideas and people who are actually executing solutions to the problems on our planet. And no one knows about these folks because they're just not getting the coverage in the negative noise news cycle and social media. So what does have to happen next to this for your concepts and the knowledge surrounding this to just burst onto the scene and just transform our future? So it's a great question. And I think in fairness, food waste has gotten good attention in the last few years. If you'd asked me this a number of years ago, I would have said different things. But in many ways, a lot of my dreams have come true with it being a UN sustainable development goal. If you told me that when I started, that food waste would be on the agenda of the United Nations, I would have said, amazing. And so so we've got a global goal by 2030, but what needs to happen is what we've already talked about, about bringing the horizon in and addressing our limiting beliefs. Like what needs to happen is we need to do more than talk about our problem here. We've got to focus on the solutions and we've got to take action and we have to do it at scale. And so one of my concerns is that it's easy to check boxes and say, hey, we're doing a little, we're doing superficial things and we're taking steps And what we need right now is we need deep action. We need real results. And so I think what in my world in the food service industry, I'm seeing some great things. I'm seeing some terrific, terrific progress. I just, you know, want to push everybody to go faster and bigger and to be really, really unrelenting in demanding that food waste can no longer be tolerated, that it's just not acceptable. And we've got to move forward from that belief. And if we work backwards from that, that it's just not okay to waste food. I think that then unlocks an immense amount of creativity. So those are the things that that I see, you know, going forward. And and in the broader community outside of food service, as it as a society, what we need to have happen is that food waste needs to become socially unacceptable. In the same way we think about the transformation with, say, cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. It used to be no big deal. Now it's mostly a really big deal. And People don't, you know, people don't smoke the way they did. And so if we got to the point where, you know, when you saw someone throw away their plate, everyone was kind of like, you know, hey, have you thought about that? Not to be critical, but just like enough where that was like not really the cool thing to do. As those social norms change, it will change everything. And even how we go to buy, how we behave as consumers, right? We go in the store, we want the perfect fruit right? I mean, we don't buy the slightly blemished fruit. We don't think about it that way. We're always looking for the best and the perfect. And so we've got to work backwards as people from this premise that it's not okay, that we're part of the solution. 
and that indeed we can modify little things about how we relate to our food in ways that can be transformational around this problem. You know, just buy the slightly bruised apple. I mean, I if I happen to buy sushi at the store, sometimes I'll buy an avocado roll and it's all brown. And I buy that with glee because I'm like, I'm going to enjoy that. And I know somebody else isn't going to buy it. And I'm solving that problem today. So those kinds of opportunities. Great. That is so great. Well, I know I'm going to try and I'll probably be thinking about this in many ways for a long, long time. And I, I may want more information or folks that are listening to this want to move forward with a new way. Like you've given us the, this great book to reference for our everyday lives, but do you want people to contact you? Do you want people to like, what ne- What do people do next with this information? Besides yeah. just go on so, their own kitchen in order. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at home, the waste-free kitchen handbook, if you have a professional interest or adjacency to this, Go take a look at LeanPath. We have a lot of resources, leanpath.com. We have a blog we publish on a lot of the insights that we see around this issue. Go to refed.org, R-E-F-E-D.org. Refed, it's it's the food waste nonprofit in the U.S. Tons of data on the problem and the solutions and all the business case around it. And so that's where to go. If you're an investor, think about putting some dollars to work in food waste innovation and the startup ecosystem around this. These are all actions we can take. Oh, terrific. Okay. Well, I got it. I can't thank you enough, Andrew Shackman from Lean Path, for just filling us all full of hope and possibility here today. Again, you can find innovators like. Andrew, all over this beautiful website at the Goodness Exchange that is focused on giving people instant access to the newsworthy things that we should know about that are happening in our world. And there are no politics and no ads there. So I hope and I know that Andrew's work and all the other innovators that we feature there are part of a constellation that's coming together to create this future that we all want for each other instead of letting it just sort of happen randomly. So thank you for being a part of, I I will call you a charter member of the conspiracy of goodness of our times, Andrew. Awesome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay. So I hope all these connections to goodness and progress will carry you through your week and you start finding all the joy and wonder that Andrew and I have been talking about today. Thanks.